you are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a Final Fantasy XIII series game club podcast. This is episode four, covering chapters five and six, and I am your host, Chris Taylor, and with me is... This is Graham Markison. And I am Matt Marcus. Last episode, we finished up chapter four, and the data log provides us a handy refresher for where we left off. If Lassie were machines, they would seek to complete any focus without question, but Lassie are human, and no human willingly desires the slavery imposed by a foul sea. Saz and Vanille support each other in their desperate flight. What is their focus? They are scared to even contemplate the answer to that question. Snow, by contrast, chooses to pursue his objective without hesitation, not because he wants to obey the foul sea, but because it is Sarah's wish. He believes without the slightest shred of doubt that his focus is to protect Cocoon. Lightning and Hope, meanwhile, choose to fight. They turn their anger against an unjust fate and a world hostile to their very existence. On their way to Eden at the very heart of Cocoon, Lightning and Hope prepare to enter a military-controlled zone, the Gapra Whitewood. The Gapper Whitewood is the border zone that separates the wilderness of the Vile Peaks from the civilization of Palampolum. Under the jurisdiction of the Sanctum Military, the Whitewood serves as an experimental facility for conducting research into bioweapons. The security of this classified area is built in the design. The paths winding through the trees are deliberately confusing, causing intruders to become hopelessly lost. Lightning and Hope make their way into Gapra Whitewood, the proto-ecology belt, Hope volunteers to take point and lead the party. As they progress further, Lightning gives Hope's words of confidence and encouragement. Yeah, this is what I was talking about last episode with Lightning's character arc changing, because now she's encouraging Hope and seeing that he is serious about trying to to grow up. A lot of this chapter is focused around that narratively. Yeah. For things I care about, now that we've uh, recently, I think we had a Crystarium expansion at the uh, after the boss at the end of the last chapter, uh, Lightning and Hope will have access now to roll-level nodes on the Crystarium. Roll-level nodes increase a character's rollability, which Refresher, Commandos, increase damage, Ravagers, increase chain bonus, Sentinels, boost the damage reduction, Medics, increase HP healed, Synergists, it increases the length of their buff durations, and for Saboteur... It increases how long their debuffs happen and how likely they are to hit. Each roll for every character has five levels, so there are four level nodes for each roll. Yeah, a single upgrade in roll level doesn't have a very noticeable effect, but there's a big difference in effectiveness between a level 1 medic and a level 5 medic. When Lightning and Hope reach an elevator, they stop for a second to talk. Hope asks if Lightning has ever been to the Gaffer Whitewood before, and Lightning says that she hasn't. She says it's covered by the Woodlands Observation Battalion, not the Guardian Corps itself. Lightning asks if Hope is afraid, and Hope says he isn't. Lightning then gives Hope the survival knife that we had in our inventory. Hope is thankful that he came with Lightning, and Lightning tells him that she wouldn't have made it this far without him. 
taking the elevator, Lightning and Hope ascend into the canopy ward walks. Up here, the party encounters their first Vespids, and they're pretty tough enemies for this point in the game. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with them. Like, they're, they're even more trouble than the Alpha Behemoths up here. Yeah, the, the Alpha Behemoths, I mean, I usually pop a Deceptisol in order to, to rush them because putting them in stagger, especially when you have launch, makes them very trivial. Yeah, because they have like a 500 like chain gauge. So if you start off with like their Sager bar full, you're doing 500% damage with each hit at the start. Right, and you don't have to worry about healing because they're being juggled. No. But this first alpha behemoth you run into, it is guarding a bouncing item sphere, which has three antidotes in it. Lightning and Hope suddenly have to take cover and hide because a small squad of bikecraft riding Sanctum troops pass by. I actually don't know if they're Sanctum because of the uniform problem with this game that you don't know who's who. But whoever they are, they don't seem to be looking for Lightning and Hope, the Lassie on the Lamb. Lightning implies that Sanctum doesn't know their escape, and that, like, Psycom is covering it up or just not telling the authorities of Lassie escaping. Makes sense. The party descends another elevator, taking them down to the research corridor. I don't think this is uh, the wilderness part of the map yet, but... There's a fight with two Vespids and then later a Behemoth, and uh, like an Alpha Behemoth with two Thexterans, that's really tough. And a Treasure Saphir, the player finds a Hawkeye, which is a weapon for hope. I don't think it's really anything special. I think it's okay. Or, or maybe the Hawkeye is a weapon that specializes on magic, which is what you want for hope, because he's, his physical attacks are worthless. Yeah, this is the magic one. This is, like, huge magic. All right. This is Hope's magic gladius. Hope wonders how the others are doing. When he brings up Snow, Lightning says Snow is too stubborn to die. Quote, he's arrogant and chummy from the get-go. He thinks he's everyone's pal, and I never liked him much. Lightning explains Nora, Snow's group of punk friends. Uh, They just generally go around cleaning up feral animals that get near the town, Talking about snow has put Hope in a sulky mood, and he marches forward with his head down. They descend into the bioweapons research site, where more feral versions of military monsters are to be found. Uh, Located around these kinds of areas are laser fences that the party cannot pass to deactivate them. You must eliminate all monsters around the area. The party trips an alarm, meaning that the observation battalion will arrive, but Hope doesn't seem to care. I find the behemoths down here to be worse than the upside counterparts. I think they hit harder, and they're faster, and they're harder to stagger. Well, they have like a very low stagger bar, but it it increases very slowly. They're just tougher. And they have heave, which I don't think the other ones did. It does does like 75% of a character's HP and damage. And knocks them down. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that hurts. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those little laser fences, there are places where the fence won't go away, but you could actually sneak behind it. Yeah, there, there are areas where I thought, oh, I got to kill all these enemies to get to this little side area, but actually you can just shimmy behind it and not worry about it. When the party is topside again, Hope is so worn out that he is barely on his feet. Lightning stops and lets him catch his breath, which is, again, another sign of lightning softening up. As they are resting, Hope seems edgy and is playing with his knife. Get used to that. You're going to see this knife a lot. It's like, I would call it Chekhov's knife, but it would have to go off to be Chekhov's knife. It really, really cuts to the heart of the plot. (laughs) Cut, 
Hey. <laughs> when Lightning starts interrogating him, she assumes that there's something wrong between him and Snow. Hope admits that his mom was killed and he blames Snow for it. He implies that he wants to kill Snow for revenge. Hope is following Lightning in order to get strong so he can kill Snow. Hope also blames Snow for dragging in the rest of the party members into this predicament. Yeah. When Lightning cuts through a branch with her gunblade, Hope recognizes the brilliance of gunblades and wonders if he can use one. Uh, Lightning says it's too heavy for Hope, and then Hope again takes out the knife, and the image spurs a flashback. She is just absolutely destroying the edge of this gunblade on this tree. Yeah, the, the trees look like, they're like techno-razor things. They're very sharp and edgy and have like little trace lines on them. They look and they they mentioned there explicitly that they're very sharp on purpose. Yeah. The the area is very aesthetically pleasant. Yeah, I'm digging it. So, in this flashback, it goes back to day 12 in Lightning's home. It's her birthday where Sarah and Snow are telling Lightning that Sarah is a lassie and she and Snow are getting married. Lightning does not buy it. She practically threatens Sarah when she reveals that she's a lassie. We get that famous worst birthday ever line from Lightning. Sarah is so wrecked that she runs off. Snow stays behind to tell off Lightning, but Lightning just gives him the cold shoulder and Snow leaves too. We skip forward to Lightning doing the dishes and she sees the gift on the table for her. It's the survival knife. She says how practical, but that knife does not look very practical. It's huge. Oh my god. It's oh my huge. God, it has no. like that ring and like the like pivot. It's really that, weird looking. That ring only exists so you can open and close it like knife the knife version of a zippo. Yeah, you know, I've gotten into knives a little bit, like pocket knives recently, and like a four inch pocket knife is huge. That thing is like a foot long, that blade. Hope just plays like it with it's like it's a like it's a fucking fidget spinner. Hope is always <laughs> playing with this fucking knife. The thing about the knife for me is it could have been a really cool point of dramatic irony because lightning gives the knife that was a present from her sister to hope who then wants to use it to kill snow who is sarah's fiance and someone that lightning hates so like there could have been something really cool and narratively weighty about this but i think they squander that opportunity oh i disagree but we won't talk about that for another couple episodes way into this knife a news report comes up on the TV. There was a pulse foul sea in Bodum. The entire district will be quarantined. Lightning then remembers that Sarah had a Lassie brand on her arm, confirming that Sarah is a Lassie. It's pretty shocking for her. How do you not re- remember that when she says to your face, I'm a Lassie? You think that would be when you remember it, not when you're watching TV. Right, but I don't know, when was the last time anyone has seen a Lassie? Like, there seems to be, it's like 500 years or something after the War of Transgression, it seems. And if nobody's seen a Lassie, they don't know what the brand would be or what it would look like. I don't know for sure, but I think when, like, on the TV, she sees, like, the Vestige, and maybe the Vestige has, like, the Lassie brand on or something, and then she remembers Sarah's brand on her arm, and it's like, oh, she is a Lassie, oh... Yeah, I guess she's putting it together at that moment. Yeah, it definitely looks like that.
The flashback ends, and we're back to the present with Lightning regretting not believing Sarah. Hope and Lightning continue forward, and a little while later, they come across the corpses of Sanctum soldiers. Hope gets very emotional when he reaches out to touch them, and light, but Lightning pushes him away. She gives him more Soldier's Creed talk about controlling their emotions and forgetting sympathy. She details a mindset of focusing on one's ultimate goal and shutting out everything else. Let doubt take over, and despair will cripple you. Hope is very open to Lightning's quote-unquote strategy to get him through the situation they're in. His ultimate goal is revenge, so he calls it Operation Nora. Yeah, I hate this Operation Nora thing. I don't know if this is a thing that sounds better in Japanese, but it feels goofy and weird, and it gets referenced as if it was a real thing. Yeah. Also, it's not true. Also, Hope it's obviously <sighs> has the obligation to kill Snow and regrets about what happened, and Lightning represents authority. I can't let go of this dumb acronym. I'm sorry. Oh, well, oh no. The acronym. Well, the acronym is bad, but it gets worse. It gets worse, I think, in this chapter. <laughs> it also, it makes me hate Hope's mom so much more because Hope just continually talks about Operation Nora as in his mother, not I'm going to kill the head of Nora. And all I can think about every time Hope's mom comes out is a bunch of shitty teens. Is this the point where they mentioned that his mother's name is Nora or that happened? It happened earlier when he told her that uh, when he told Lightning that uh, Snow was responsible. Right. Yeah. So like the fact that this group's name happens to be Nora and his mother's name happened to be Nora. I find that like to be incredibly lazy writing. Oh, so bad. There's no reason why these two things should be the same. I mean, and they probably only did it so that they can make Operation Nora a thing, which is a thing that shouldn't exist at all in this script. And like it just drives me like this is the first time in the game where the narrative made me mad. <laughs> it makes me so angry because it just shits on the next hour, right? Because they just want to say, hey, this is the operation to get revenge for Nora on the leader of Nora. And whoever wrote that is way more in love with it than how good it is and how good it is is not at all. Yeah, I mean, all you needed to do is not name it that and just be like, Oh, my revenge plot against Snow. Like Operation Stab Stab. <laughs> yeah. Operation Heat Wave. I gotta quit this podcast. I'm gonna go write Final Fantasy 16. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Hope knows that a revenge won't bring his mother back, but he's not willing to move blame from Snow onto the Sanctum. Hope and Lightning walk away from the bodies. A lit communicator lies active on the ground. Right. I, I have no idea why Snow doesn't hate Sanctum more. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> Hope or Snow? Hope. Why why Hope doesn't hate Sanctum more? Because okay. Sanctum was the one who actually shot the thing that killed his mother. Like, Snow is just kind of helped put her into danger, you know, whether for good or for ill. It's very contrived. He actively tried to save her. Oh, my God. It's It doesn't make any sense. He really should be hating hating the government right now for the purge. Like, he, he was mad about the purge, and yet he doesn't seem to hold it against the sanctum in moments like this. It doesn't. Ah, yeah. A, <sighs> I, I, I like the arc between Hope and Snow. It's a very interesting arc to have between, like, two heroes in an RPG par party, but it is very contrived. Yeah, they definitely cram jam it in there. Yeah, like, all they needed to do was have one moment where you go, oh, that woman whom you dropped, like, that was my mother. 
I'm mad at you for, for putting her in danger. And then he goes, but we did it to save people. And then they work it out. Well, we carry on through the area. We start encountering some uh, core troops and the Velocycles. Uh, those Melvis Velocycles, they're tough. They have this really powerful ice attack. It takes a long time to charge, but it's very deadly. I can't remember specifically, but I think there's actually one fight where you had to fight two of those Velocycles, and that was really tough. Yeah, that's where you summon. This is my mental summoning flowchart. Is there a Velocycle? Yes. Is there anything else in this encounter? If yes, summon. <laughs> they take so long to stagger, and I just I don't want to deal with it. We will see these Velocycles very frequently in the next few chapters, and I don't think they really mix them up that much. They're they're not terribly different than the Behemoths. They just don't have, instead of having like a heave or whatnot, they sometimes have like a Gatling gun attack, which we've seen with other enemies. Well, the ones later on, if before you have a Sentinel in your party, like the the gun attack will absolutely oh. obliterate you through protect and shell from full HP. Yeah, that's that's a balance problem. I don't know how. I mean, I guess you just have to hope the RNG doesn't tell it to use that move. I think you're supposed to flee from it, but later on in uh, notes for another episode, I just have in all caps fucking velo cycles. Mm-hmm. So. We kill a bunch of these dudes, go down, go a little further, and then we take a big elevator up and encounter a boss, the Aster Proto-Florian. This particular boss fight, what makes it interesting is that the elemental weaknesses and resistances will change for the enemy over time. And it's it's a really goofy-looking boss because it's got, like, a flower petal on its back. It's like a Bulbasaur, but with, like, hook hands. Well, it's what if Bulbasaur was a robot frog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really what it is. Yeah, and what'll happen is like the the flower when it does its big AOE attack, its flower will open up and it'll bend downwards into like a fan blade and spin around and hit everybody. Yeah, into like a helicopter rotor. That yeah. that attack looks very cool and is very intimidating and does a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. It should be said that like. Uh... The ability to change its weakness is sort of a Final Fantasy staple. A lot of bosses in the franchise's history have had this like gimmick of changing weaknesses. Usually not this early in the game. No, I don't think... It's usually like a mid-late game ability that they usually have. They put it early in the game because in Final Fantasy thirteen, it doesn't matter because you're just auto-battling. That's true. So it's like, oh, I guess my guys are just using different particle effects now. Yeah, I don't know if the way the AI works, the game might want you to be using Libra multiple times in order to get your AI companion to do it. I don't know how how that works entirely. If you use it once at the beginning, it just updates when it changes over. Oh, that's useful. If you Libra at the beginning, this is a complete non-issue and you just treat it like a really large behemoth. Gotcha. Yeah, this is also a pretty long fight I found I don't know how many stagger cycles it took. I think it took three, but I, I felt like this one dragged a little longer than it needed to, but it, it felt reasonably epic. Yeah. Like, I think the the HP count for this boss is like in the hundred thousands compared to like old Final Fantasy games where even the final boss only got up to like 50 or 60,000 HP. Right. Yeah, but you also didn't start doing 300% damage to the boss for like 30 seconds. Well, yeah, I'm just saying, like, that's just, like, a big difference in, like, you know, how DPS works in this game compared to, like, other Final Fantasies and other RPGs. It's way more, like, quick and almost action-ish. 
Right. And also when you're in the battle, I don't know about you guys, I don't really read the numbers. And so like, no. cause you're not really comparing not usually. Yeah. Cause you're not comparing like the effectiveness of attack A to attack B, except for maybe the chain gauge. So it doesn't seem like the HP blow, like as a, as a raw number is like, it's, Oh, it's got a hundred thousand hit points. That's a lot, but it feels different depending on how the battle flows. I think what they're going for with the paradigm system is like, rather than micromanaging the combat, like you would in an older JRPG where the flow of the battle gets lost in just the minutia of micromanaging it here, you're only really worried about the flow, but for that to work. And I think it works in this fight. The bosses do have to go on a while. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you beat Proto Florian and you have a little cutscene, and hope, puts his weapon away and says, Operation Nora, stage one complete. And that's kind of weird because it's like, okay, in your big revenge scheme, the very first stage was to kill a giant flower. It's him trying to say, I, the part, the first part of his plan, he explicitly said last time is, I need to get stronger to kill snow. I, I know, it's just like, uh, there's something funny, like... It is very funny. He, he had like a very specific plan. Stage one, kill a giant flower. Stage 20, kill snow. 17 sub A is very exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, it just goes to show, like, for me, again, to harp on it a little bit more, the whole Operation Nora thing, it feels really childish and lame. Like, it it just doesn't feel good, because, like, Operation Nora, stage one complete. It just... Ugh. Oh, dude, we could, do, we could do a tight 40 bitching about Operation Nora. Yeah, because, I mean, again, it's the same thing, like, you know, the army is no match for Nora thing. It's the same kind of tone to it, just not trying to be funny it's trying to be serious. oh hey guess what it turns out the army was definitely a match for nora <laughs> and now now hope is mad about it uh, that was mean about somebody's dead mom actually yeah well, oh god don't worry uh <laughs> <laughs> no don't worry about it i thought it was very funny all right after that lightning and hope continue to pal and pull them they take an elevator up and from a vantage point they could see a city across the lake and just so that we mention this now, Palumpolum is a reference to the two characters in Final Fantasy IV or two in the States. Yep. Yep. Just worth mentioning a little bit of fan service there. So we get this uh, CGI cutscene with uh, Snow and Sarah. I can't, you know what? We should take a five second break, watch it, because I do not remember anything about it. Well, like, I really uh, just to explain it. it, it's just Sarah and Snow escaping from Psycom. And what happens is there anything is, that leads into it though? Not really. It's just a flashback. Okay. And all it does okay. is really explain why Sarah is at the Vestige because Snow and Sarah are flying around. So Snow dumps Sarah on the Vestige and it like absorbs her. Yeah. The direction is really good on this. Like you have good action. Like you get a lot of flying sand, which is like really well rendered. Like the color palette is great. The water looks great. I like this cutscene a lot. It looks even really though it nice. Not super important. Yeah, and it also should have killed Snow completely. He should have been so dead. <laughs> you know what? Why does he keep getting on motorcycles? <laughs> Every time he's on a hover bike, he de- he almost gets blown up in some way. Oh uh, yeah. I'm not sure if this is true, but it seems like if you fall in Final Fantasy 13. You will die. If you crash land in a vehicle, you'll be okay. No, but Snow falls from the hanging edge and he survives. That's like the first thing we see him do. He might just be really resilient. After the cutscene, we go on to chapter six.
the Sunweft Waterscape. The Riparian Corridor. What the fuck does that even mean? Off-limits to civilians, the unusual nature reservation is often visited by sanctum officials engaged in ecological field studies. Research into the local ecosystem is conducted via climate control mechanisms installed in the area. These mechanisms provide direct access to the fallacy in charge of manipulating weather conditions. I think that is so funny. I want to know what's up with this local ecosystem. So what if we completely change the climate that the local flora and fauna are used to just to see what happens? Yeah, I mean, it it goes to show again that the fallacy's power really allow for strange phenomena like this. I mean, they control the weather. They're literally the sun. They're literally deus ex machina, like literally. Yeah. So at the start of the chapter, we have a cut scene where Saz and Vanille are talking and they have no real destination to mind. And Vanille says, we wound up here by following the smell. Saz is definitely not having it. And Psycom jets fly overhead as the pair ponders what to do, with Saz appearing despondent with no goal in mind, and Vanille suggests they run the opposite direction, and the pair wind up setting off towards Nautilus. Uh, In general, I am not a big fan of the music in this area. I am a very big fan of the 5,300 CP I had to spend. (laughs) Yeah, the lay motif in this area gets kind of annoying after a while. I don't like this version of the leitmotif, but um, speaking of music, earlier in this uh, chapter, you get Vanille's theme, which is that like really nice floaty piano jam. It almost sounds like a Carpenter song. This track here, it's it's a vocal version of a track we've already heard, and it's also given like a a bouncy like you know electronic pop beat underneath it, and it's just it's a little it's a little too goofy. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll leave it there. Not a big fan of it, but not for any reason I can articulate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're in a forested, verdant area, and you're running into uh, flora and fauna such as hedge frogs and, and flandragoras. I, I think the, the flandragoras, th- this flan design, they do some really cool things with it. And I think this one, it looks like a giant bell pepper, and it looks really cool. Yeah, I like it. They do good stuff with the flans, and they have really, they have a. Uh, Pun names on point, like when we get to the Flanaders. Oh yeah, next next chapter. Those are those are pretty great. Uh, there's also another cool enemy here: the little gremlins that are running around in a circle. Uh, and these guys, they're they're really really cute. They look like I don't know. They're kind of owly and they're kind of bat like, but they they run around with their wings flapping around. It's, I don't know. I like these enemies a lot, and you see these you see them pretty frequently over the next uh, next little bit. Their whole thing is they cast magic and you have to make sure that they don't gang up on you and and kill characters. So this is the first time where you're also getting your first AOE magic skills. And so what you want to do is you want to try to sneak up on them if you can, which usually you can't. But you're going to try to trigger as many of them as you can with a Vera attack. Yeah. You end up in an area with a ton of Flandragoras in it. And on this plateau, you can find uh, Procyons for Sats a new weapon, and another doctor's code. This is definitely how I won the area because I dumped all of my stuff into lightning's uh, lightning sword. So I wound up not using uh, Saz as a commando and just only using Ravager Ravager or Saboteur Ravager if I needed maintenance. Procyons, like, they say they provide a slight boost, but it's like, it feels enormous. 
And then with the doctor's code, I didn't really need to change to medic. So I just basically DPS down through this entire area, getting five stars the whole way. Interesting, because I forget what weapon I'm using for Saz. I think it's like the something sabers. It's an earlier weapon. And by this point, I've upgraded everybody, everybody's weapon except for Vanille. So Vanille is dragging a little, but I, I've been spreading, spreading the love around a bit. In terms of upgrades, I don't think I've done a lot of upgrading yet because like I'm not even sure which weapon class I want to stick with everyone. I'm kind of waiting for like the game to open up because I'm going to try and play the game with like only Zaz, Snow, and Vanille since I usually don't use them later, but I'm not sure yet. Yeah, later on you get that uh, the new shop. It's like Plautus Workshop, and if you buy use weapons that don't come from there, huge jump. <laughs> That's where you get all the weapons with the cool effects, like the Procyons, uh, the ones that give you ATB charge when you hit stuff. That's where all the good weapons live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you get a cutscene with an absolutely beautiful sky. Benil asks Zaz about his family, and we find out that Zaz is a divorced father or a widow. He has a son. He, uh, Zaz does not want to go home on account of being a lessee, but Benil reassures him, you might be a lessee. But you're still a daddy. And I think this is the point where the blues music kicks in, which is, I think, called Daddy's Got the Blues. <laughs> That's neat. I like that. I mean, it's a nice touch, but it, again, making the leitmotif for the one African-American, well, African, black character. The one black, black character. Yeah, because where's Africa? The one black character be a blues tune is still kind of a little bit uns- insensitive. <sighs> yeah, it is, but like it, they're really good themes, and like Zaz has a lot of dignity to him, even though he's like, you know, a little bit uh, blundery. Yeah, I mean the weariness of it does come through with with that tune, but I again, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zaz is what if we took and a too too old for this shit and made it into a human? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so when Vanille asks the name of Zaz's son, we get a flashback to day eleven. And Bodum with Zaz and his son, Dodge. Dodge is wishing on the fireworks and says that Zaz is never happy or smiles. He wished for Zaz to cheer up and be his old self again. Zaz makes a wish and keeps it secret, and the flashback ends with a gray-haired woman in glasses approaching the pair. In the present, Benil snaps Zaz back from drifting off and tells him to keep it together, and they head off again. I definitely like this scene. Dodge is very adorable. Like, as a parent who is very depressed all the time, like, I get absolutely emotionally crushed by Dodge uh, wishing for Saz's happiness. Like, my kid definitely tries to do things to cheer me up all the time, so I definitely related when Saz uh, said, now I've got kids looking after me, some dad I am. Yeah, I think Dodge is good, but he looks a little too much like a Cabbage Patch Kid for me. Oh my god. Yeah, dude, he definitely does. <laughs> it's a it's a little uncanny, but it's I didn't it's realize still... that until you said it, but it is absolutely true. Yeah. Like the roundest face there's ever been. Well, it, the afro doesn't help either because it makes it look like a chia pet. God. Well, after the scene, we run into some scale beasts, which are pretty tough. And I think the game suggests you want to bypass them. It does. Yeah, it, they, they tell you that. Oh, you don't have to fight these. They won't charge you or anything. You can sneak around them. But you want to do it because they give you You want to do it. Yeah, you want to fight these. And I, I fought every single one of them. Not only because I think they're fun fights, in part because they're challenging. You have to really 
work at building up their meter, but once their meter is gone, you want to debuff them immediately and then just continue the, the attacking them in staggered state because none of your debuffs will land when they have their shell on, but they'll 100% land when the shell is gone. So it's got a nice flow to it. You can sneak up on these guys really easily, especially the first few. And like we've mentioned, the pacing of the character growth, you're usually at the end of your open Crystarium by the time you get to the boss of the area and then the Crystarium expands. If you ignore these guys, if you don't fight them, then you're going to be underpowered for a little bit. And each one gives you about, I think, 116 CP. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Which, significant enough that you want to do it, but probably also not enough for how much time it takes. They are long fights. They're, they're a long they're like fight. two minutes. Yeah, I couldn't make it any shorter than I was getting. Yeah. Right. But at this point, you have you have poison, too, right? Yeah, you, you've you, unlocked poison. That's so. where you do all of your damage. Most of your damage is if once they're done staggering, uh, the poison usually will kill them right after or right before you stagger them again. Yeah, poison's pretty good. We continue jumping up and down this like really uneven cliffside, which is like an, like an interesting area to navigate just because it's not a long, flat plane. Uh, we descend the cliffside in this way, uh, fight a few gremlins, and start a cutscene by a lake. Saz is tired and needs a rest, and Vanille teases him about it. She says, how can you take your eyes off of a cute girl like me? And Saz just brushes that off completely. He's not interested at all. He takes a nap, and Vanille expresses worry about being able to see to the Chickabo, and says, we need to keep our dreams alive in order to have something to look forward to. Saz says, the next stop is Nautilus, the city of dreams. We cut to Vanille waking up from a nap and Saz is gone. And they do a bit of a fake out, trying to imply that he left her. But that lasts all of five seconds because Vanille follows the chocobo to find Saz standing and staring into the lake. Saz tells Vanille that Dodge is a lessee. And we get a flashback to day five. In the flashback, we go to Uride Gorge, which is an area that was referenced earlier. A SICOM operation happened there that was mentioned in one of the Day 11 flashbacks with lightning. Saz took Daj there to surprise him with a chocobo chick. This particular place is a source of power. It's sort of an energy plant, and it's mentioned in a data log that it's a common place for kids to be taken to as a field trip. Yeah, it's like when I was a kid, we uh, went to like Three Mile Island. It's so it's like your <laughs> like a third grade field trip, right? Yeah, like we used to go to uh, Mystic Seaport. It was Mystic Seaport or the Pequot Museum for me. That is less cool than an active <laughs> nuclear power plant. <laughs> it is. Dodge took Dodge there to surprise him with a chocobo chick, but when he wasn't looking for a moment, Dodge ran into the energy plant. We cut between Saz panically looking and yelling for Dodge, and see Vanille and the other character that we've seen before with the cavalry in a blue outfit, crouched over Dodge in a smoky room before being pulled away from somebody, getting a good shot of Dodge's brand glowing from under his sleeve. Saz spots Dodge, and in the process of checking to make sure he's okay, he sees the brand, and he doesn't see anybody else with him because Vanille and, and the other character have left at that point. We hear Saz narrate that some pulseless sea snuck in and tried to attack the Sanctum Falci, and in its desperation, it made Dodge a lessee to try to protect itself. 
Thaw says his son is a sanctum lassie, a hero, and he and Vanille are pulse lassie, Dodge's enemy. We then see the same lady from before, as Saz says that Psycom came immediately after to take Dodge, and he was continually tested, but they could not figure out his focus. Maybe it was to find pulse lassie, maybe it was to kill him, but either way, how could a kid that young stand a chance? Thaz says that Dodge became able to sense things from Pulse, and it was he who found the Fauci in the Vestige. After figuring that it was Dodge's focus, Saz boarded the Purge train, trying to help fulfill what he thought was Dodge's focus. Thaz is still conflicted. If he was right, Dodge is a crystal now. But if Dodge's focus was to kill the Vestige Fauci's Lassie, if Saz and the group don't die, his son will become a thief. Advancing, the pair runs into a strange orb with some gremlins and a wyvern in the background. Benil touches the orb and it begins to rain, and the gremlins flee, but some hedgefrogs and a larger yellow one appear. We get a mini-tutorial about the climate control orbs and how it can be used to change the enemies that will be encountered in the area. Some are rain-shy, and some of the hydrophilic enemies that are rare can be found that way. The fight with the hedge frogs is mildly interesting. The larger one is a mud frog. It has much higher hit points than stagger meter, and if you eliminate enough of the hedge frogs, it has the ability to bring more back into the fight. When the area is dry, you fight flandragoras and wyverns, and when it is wet, you fight hedge frogs, mud frogs, gremlins, and scale beasts. You go through a section swapping the weather back and forth while doing some combat. I had the weather dry for the last encounter in this area, and it wound up being a wyvern and two gar chimera I don't know how to... Gar-chimeracas. Uh, they're like the bigger gremlins. Gar-chimeracas? Yeah, I have no... That is not a very good Nobody name. Nobody says these things. Nobody. No human was meant to say these words. Yeah, they're the, they're the gremlins with the way stronger magic. The fight is actually like super duper hard and i wound up getting one star on it because i was trying to rush down the uh mages and basically was on the back foot the whole time with the wyvern uh what did you guys do with the weather here i think i just mixed it up a little bit i just winged it the fight against the wyverns though they're kind of tough because they will give i think they do debuffs on you i think they do deprotect yeah and then they follow it up with that movie that instantly kills the character if they're still deprotected yeah Right. Particularly for the show, I wanted to see everything, so I pretty much went through every area, both dry and wet, to see how they were different. Oh, and wow. it's interesting narratively or world in a world-building sense that you can do this, and it affects what enemies show up. But 
I don't know what mechanical purpose it really has other than giving you some input into what you're fighting. Yeah, it doesn't affect that area in your navigation. There might be a point at which there are some items that you can't get if it's in one setting or another, but I, I don't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, it winds up just being, do you like fewer, stronger enemies, you turn it dry, or do you like fighting like regenerating horde dudes, you do it wet? Right. The wyvern fights, yeah. I, I did that wyvern fight with, you know, the, the little owl guys, and... Yeah, that fight that fight was really tough, in part because you need to be really tight with your timing to trigger the stagger on the wyvern, which you really need to do. And the fire attacks from the little owl guys, they'll interrupt you, and they do a fair bit of damage if you're not paying attention to them. So I forget if I ended up getting a good star rating in that fight, but I, I did have a lot of fun with that fight. Yeah, I think it killed me the first time. The wyverns? If you fled from the scale beast earlier, you could theoretically not have Asuna and they would basically be unbeatable because you would not be able to get rid of the D-Protect. Right. Asuna is so good. It's yeah. it's super necessary. So after we go through this weather controlling area, we get to the mouth of a cave and a cutscene starts. Thaz and Vanille come across two large sleeping dog-like things with tree trunks sticking out of their backs. They try to sneak around, but they wake, and you get into a boss fight with Enki and Enlil. Enki and Elil are both pretty beefy enemies. Enlil is immune to lightning and weak to water and attacks with thunder, while Enki is the inverse of that. They each know a move that does light damage and inflicts deprotect, and this is super, super dangerous because not only are these guys super powerful, but also the first time you stagger either of them, they'll use a move called Bellow, which will apply bravery, faith, haste, and vigilance, and either end thunder or end water, depending on which one it is. So the combination of the deprotect and the buffs make them super, super dangerous. I really struggled in this fight because I kept needing to switch to medic to heal up. So I was having trouble getting guys into stagger and then launching them and then beating them up. So these, this is a really tough fight, and you really have to manage your health. And at this point, I don't believe you have Dispel yet, so you can't... No. Yeah, I don't think you can remove any of those buffs. You have to tank them and, and fight your way through it. Each of them has a move that does 50% of your health for your entire party. That's where the Doctor's Code is real clutch, because at this point, if a Doctor's Code potion uh, basically completely nullifies that last attack, the, the uh, big AoE... This fight has a really goofy boss music. It's like very good. It's just very goofy for fighting a boss too. I think the fight is really good. You wind up doing a lot, large varieties of things. You're uh, curing, deprotect, healing, doing the debuffs, making sure you have the right elemental damage boost because they're both weak to the elements that Saz knows how to enhance. And then you're also just doing the standard stagger chain. But uh, once you do stagger them, though, you don't really want a commando because, uh, well, at least for me, right? Because I dumped all my stuff into lightning. Uh, Saz doesn't do amazing physical damage. So just keeping them both as Ravager did a ton of damage while building meter. And uh, since each character can hit both elements, it was just way easier for me to keep them there. I like this fight. A plus. Yeah, I had a pretty decent experience with this fight basically when the battle starts out i got all my debuffs on them and i got my buffs on me you know i focused on attacking them and getting their stagger bar up and i think when one of them does bellow and they put all those buffs on them i just try and get rid of them pretty quickly i try and just like pack on the damage and get them as quickly as i could i don't think you can launch them because zaz doesn't have that move 
but you just keep on uh, attacking relentlessly and healing when you have to, and you can get rid of the one that bellows in one Sager bar if you're good. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. After the fight, you get a Fulmin and Riptide Ring, as well as a Crystarium expansion. You carry a short way and get to an electrified fence on the outskirts of Nautilus and climb in through a hole. And as the rain starts, Zaz and Vanil take shelter and wait for a boat. Vanille asks if Zaz hates Pulse, and Zaz says of course, but he used to not to. And he goes on a rant about the Sanctum fearmongering and Pulse to scare the population to plassation. Zaz says that everything is the fault of the scum from Pulse and Vanille all but says, I did this to your son and everyone in your group, and that chapter ends. Yeah, Saz's rant, a little too real for me in the year 2018. Yeah, like I, I mentioned this in like chapter one, but it like it sounds borderline conspiracy theory or like paranoid nut kind of a thing. It's pretty harsh, and you know, Vanille gets upset, and she runs into the rain trying to hide, hide her crying. And you hear another voiceover from Vanille saying that she was trying not to show that she was crying because she's she's very hurt by what Saz says, and Saz doesn't notice at all. Yeah. Well, do we have anything else? Any uh, closing thoughts on uh, chapters five and six of uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen? Not too much. I think chapter six is one of the lesser chapters in this game. Vanille and Zaz, them traveling alone is a gimmick that gets old quickly, and I don't think that this is that much better than chapter, was it, three or four? No, it's build up for uh, chapter eight, yeah. because Vanille and Zaz need to spend a bunch of time together, but just right now, chapter six is, like, mm, not very good. Yeah, chapter five I like, though. Yeah, chapter five is pretty good. Yeah. Chapter five is great. Yeah, chapter five, I like that one a lot because it's pretty simple and straightforward, but it does some character work besides Operation Nora, which I've talked about. It gives you launch, and so you're launching things, and that feels amazing. And you're hitting really hard if you're if you're like me and you beefed up the gladiuses like Chris also did. So chapter five is really solid. Chapter six feels like a waypoint. And some of the some of the fights are good. Like I like those scale bees fights. Yes, they're a bit long, and there's a lot of them, but I found those very satisfying. But yeah, you're right. The Saz and Vanille chapters, you feel like you're fighting against the system instead of fighting with the system. It just has a little bit more friction for me. I think what the problem is is that chapter four is setting up lightning and hope for chapter five, which is like their big character moments, mm-hmm. but. Saz and Vanille don't pay off until way later. Right. And this is their chapter four, except they also had a chapter four. Yeah. So you just spend a long time doing basically nothing with Saz and Vanille. Right. And like I said, in the data log, they are literally wandering aimlessly until Saz says he wants to go to Nautilus. So it feels that way, too. It feels aimless. He doesn't even want to go there. 
They just want to go the opposite direction of Psycom, and that just happens to be Nautilus. I mean, thankfully, the next chapter is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, well, you can email us at uh, contact at lightningstrikesthrice.com or use our contact form on our website, lightningstrikesthrice.com, with your thoughts on any chapter we've already covered or any chapter in the future. And you can contact us on Twitter at lightxthrice and on Facebook at facebook.com slash lightxthrice. You can see my work at chrisTaylor.zone or listen to my other podcast, Magmar Sucks. Do you guys have anything you want to share with the listeners? Nothing new for me. Just the usual, like I'm doing a Let's Play of New Threat, a gameplay mod for Final Fantasy VII. You know, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Been getting a little buzz, and it's a lot of fun. With that, you've been listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a pitch drop podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or by going to our Patreon at patreon.net slash pitch drop. Check out pitchdrop.net for more of this and other shows.